This morning we'll be in Ruth chapter 4. We are coming up on the end of the book of Ruth. We'll have our message today of Ruth 4 verses 1 through 17 and then we'll conclude with a a wrap-up sermon on the last few verses of the book of Ruth. But Ruth chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 this morning to remind you where we are in the story. Uh, Ruth has proposed marriage to Boaz by this point and he has agreed Uh, but there is a small issue of an alternative kinsman redeemer, another man who is a closer relation to Elimelech's family who has right of first refusal. And this morning we're going to read about the interaction that Boaz has with this man to figure out who will be the redeemer of Ruth and Naomi, who will be the one to redeem and save Elimelech's family. And as we consider this, we are going to see especially the radical grace of God in Jesus Christ, the radical grace that saves sinners like you and me, the radical grace that would cause us to ask, uh, as the old hymn writer asked, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's read together Ruth 4, verses 1 through 17. Brothers, sisters, these are the very words of God. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. but The word of the Lord will stand forever. And may God now add his blessing to our hearing and the preaching of his word this morning. We talk a lot these days about toxic relationships. Maybe that's a phrase you've heard once or twice. Toxic relationships, these relationships that sort of drain life out of you and you don't get much in return. At least you don't get much good in return. A toxic relationship, according to what I've seen as definitions, uh, are relationships where uh, there's abuse involved and there's suffering involved and there's pain involved on your part and there's not much good that you get out of the actual relationship itself. It's toxic, it corrupts, it's painful, and not in a way that's redemptive. It's painful in a way that just causes suffering and misery in your life. Toxic relationships are occurring apparently in friendships as well as in romance. In romance, there are what they call toxic relationships. Spouses who are not getting on with each other and who are, uh, in fact, abusing and hurting each other. Maybe you've known people who are in toxic relationships. Maybe you've been in a toxic relationship in the past. The problem that I see when I hear people talking about toxic relationships, however, is that it it seems to be a catch-all phrase for any relationship that is costly. Any relationship that costs you something, we're quick to label a toxic relationship. When in fact, maybe it's just a very costly relationship. Now laying aside the interactions that you and I have with other sinners in this world, there is no doubt that if you were to interview the angels of God and ask them about the Lord Jesus Christ's relationship with his church and how he purchased the church with his own blood, if you were to ask the angels what their thoughts were about that plan of salvation, they would have told you. This seems like our our Lord is entering into a toxic relationship, a relationship that is costly. Go read the Old Testament and how God described his relationship with Israel. You can go read about how God views his relationship with this wayward bride, this people that he's purchased for himself and he's married himself to and he's done good for them. And all he's gotten in return from them is pain and rejection. They've gone astray from him every chance they got. They're not good for him. If you were to have the angels talking to God about his relationship to Israel, they'd be telling them, God, this is toxic. She's not good enough for you. Move on. This is only causing you pain. Although Boaz and Ruth's relationship is certainly not toxic, it is costly. It's very, very costly. Boaz redeems Ruth in this text, and what we see is that his redemption of Ruth comes at a very high cost. Boaz meets with this other man, this man who's not even named, mind you. 
but this other potential redeemer. And Boaz starts telling him about the offer that's on the table for this man. There's land available. And you have the right to redeem this land. And at first, the man is interested, right? Free land, no strings attached, that I can purchase and redeem for Elimelech and essentially absorb into my own family lands. That's a pretty good deal. But then Boaz drops the hammer on him and says, well, in fact, uh, there are a few strings attached, one of which is that you have to marry this young woman, Ruth. You have to raise up offspring. And the children you have with this woman, Ruth, will in fact not be considered your own children, but Elimelech's children. And your inheritance that you currently have will be mixed in with this inheritance of Elimelech's family. And there's the potential that down the line, you may have some family squabbling about that. Y'all know, right, that when families have like inheritances, that's where we fight most often, right? Who gets what? Who's going to have this? Who's getting that thing that grandma used to keep up in the attic? Who's getting the money? Who's getting the land? Who's getting the car? That's where most of our squabbles happen, isn't it? And Boaz tells this man, hey, there's the potential that that's going to happen, right? Because now this land and your children you'll have with Ruth, they won't be considered your own. They'll be considered Elimelech's children, Naomi's children. And the man bows out. He says, that cost is too high. I can't risk my own inheritance. If you were wondering why all of a sudden he changed his mind so quickly from, yes, I will redeem it in verse 4 to I cannot redeem it for myself in verse 6, that's why. He says, man, if I, if I do this, it has the potential to ruin my own inheritance. It has the potential to ruin my own standing and my own family's legacy and legitimacy in Bethlehem. I can't do it, Boaz. You do it instead. And regardless of all that, remember who Ruth is. Ruth is a destitute woman. Ruth is a woman who has nothing going for her. There is no valid reason or benefit that Boaz is getting out of this relationship. He is paying all of the cost. And what we see in that is his grace, his graciousness, his love, his generosity. He's in this not for himself. He's not getting anything out of this. In fact, all he's getting is high costs. And if you were to ask Boaz's friends, his companions, in Bethlehem, hey, what do you think about Boaz doing this? They probably would have told him, this is a bad idea. This is a bad investment, right? This is a destitute woman. You're a wealthy man. This is a foreign woman. You're a good, faithful Israelite. This is a woman where if you unite yourself to her in marriage, she has the potential to corrupt your own family's legacy and your own inheritance. Boaz, this is a bad idea. Don't pursue this relationship. But he does anyway. He is willing to lay down everything in his own life for the good of this woman, Ruth. The cost that is associated with Ruth's redemption, he is willing to pay, and in fact, he's glad to pay it. Not because of what he's getting out of her, but because of what he can give and do for her. Boaz is a man, in this sense, who mirrors our Lord Jesus Christ so clearly. So clearly, Boaz, in this context, is acting not just as the kinsman redeemer, but a picture of the ultimate redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what Boaz is doing in this moment. All of her debt, 
all of her poverty, all of her need, he's going to make his own. He's going to take responsibility for it. And all of his wealth and his honor and his standing in the community that he has worked for himself will become hers in this great transaction. In a very real sense, Boaz is laying down his life for Ruth in this text. He is so uniting himself to her that his fortunes become her fortunes and her poverty becomes his poverty. Her debts and responsibilities become his debts and responsibilities. And everything good that he has ever had becomes hers. Not because she's earned it, not because she deserves it, but because of his love for her and his graciousness. He does this publicly. He does it in the gates. He claims Ruth as his very own and he claims all that she has as his very own by right of redemption. And now we see the turning point in this story. Up until now, we've been wondering, how are Naomi and Ruth going to go from the bitterness of their poverty to the blessing of fullness again? How are they going to be saved from this thing they've got themselves into? And it's this moment that's the turning point for them. We read about how after this, Boaz takes Ruth, and a woman who for 10 years could not conceive with her husband, Malon, It's like that. She conceives with Boaz. She bears a son who is named Obed. And she becomes a restorer of life, a nourisher of Naomi in her old age. Naomi goes from bitterness to blessing, from emptiness to fullness again. Naomi, who you'll remember at the start of this book, she demanded everyone call her bitter We made the point that nowhere in this book does God allow her to be called bitter. She never is called Mara in this entire story. But now we see that even her own attitude towards her situation has to change. She's no longer bitter. She has experienced instead God's blessing. And the woman, Naomi, who once accused God of making her empty, now we see that her cup fills, and like the psalmist said in Psalm 23, her cup overfloweth. In this text, we have a crystal clear picture of what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. What does it look like to be redeemed by God? And we have to start with this recognition, friends, that being redeemed by God does not look like you being good enough. See, this is a way that that Boaz and Ruth's story is actually unlike your story with Jesus Christ. Because even Ruth is a virtuous woman. She's poor, she's destitute, but even Boaz said, everyone knows how virtuous you are, right? She is a virtuous woman in a hard situation. Can I simply say, you and I were not virtuous people in a hard situation. That's not who we were when Christ came to redeem us. What does the Bible say? Romans 5, 8, when we were... Yet, without hope, God died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ gave himself for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We 
were completely unvirtuous, unlovable, in fact. In fact, let, let's turn over there for just a moment. Turn over with me to the New Testament book of Romans. Go to Romans 5 and verse 6. This is such a clear picture of the difference between our situation and Ruth's situation. Ruth was virtuous, but poor. You and I weren't just poor, we were also unvirtuous. Look with me at Romans 5 and verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, you might be willing to give your life for somebody good, right? You might be willing to give your life for somebody virtuous, someone who you know is a good person. But verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, what is a sinner? A sinner is an enemy of God. A sinner is somebody who hates God and who hates everything about God. And the Bible says that while you were still in that state, Christ died for us. Ruth was poor but virtuous. You and I were just poor and miserable. And still, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. Still, God demonstrates his love toward you that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. God doesn't wait in heaven for you to clean your life up, friend. He doesn't wait in heaven for you to get right and then he'll save you. He does the saving first and he makes you right again. He redeems you from your spiritual poverty in sin. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's not talking about getting, getting a big bank account off of Jesus there. This isn't some health and wealth verse where somehow Jesus comes to put a, a, a big six-figure income in your bank account or in your Roth IRA. He's talking about spiritual riches, spiritual wealth. You and I, apart from Christ, are destitute spiritually. Nothing good in us. And Jesus Christ becomes poor for our sakes. He lays aside his own righteousness and takes our sins on himself so that we, through his poverty, as he takes our sins away from us, he hands us his righteousness so that we in him might become rich. Just like Ruth and Boaz. When Boaz marries Ruth, all of her poverty becomes his responsibility and all of his riches become her blessings. So in Jesus Christ, friends, that is what he's done for you. All of your poverty, all of your sin, he takes responsibility for. And all of his righteousness and his blessings become your blessings. Not because you deserve it. Not because you did a good enough job to warrant it. But simply because of his love and his grace, God does this for you. God does this for you. I sometimes wonder if John the Baptist had been a modern day matchmaker. You know that's how John the Baptist functions in the Bible, right? He's like a matchmaker. 
He's the one who's setting the groom up with the bride. That's his mission. He's preparing the way for the bridegroom to come in and take his bride and claim his bride for himself. If John the Baptist had been a modern-day matchmaker with all of our definitions of toxic relationships, he would have told Jesus, don't, don't do this. This is not a people who are going to be good for you. They're going to they're gonna cheat on you. They're, they're, they're reprehensible. They're not, they don't even love you right now. Why would you think that you could love them into a state of loving you? And Jesus says, John, let me handle this. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. The Lord Jesus redeems you from sin. Not when you become redemption worthy, but simply because of his grace and his love. The idea that somehow our relationship with God is a matter of God doing his part and I meet him halfway, completely untrue. Not only untrue, but dangerous to your soul. Have you met people who live life that way? Have you met Christians who are living life as if that were true? They're not happy. Why not? Because they view it as, well, God sort of has to do his part, and i got to do my part, but if I mess this up, God won't love me anymore. What a world of difference it makes to know that God loves you even when you're unlovable. That Jesus Christ redeems you even when you are unredeemable. What a difference that makes. Because, friends, you could never possibly be any worse than you were when Jesus Christ found you. You could never be any more of a sinner than you were when Jesus Christ said, I want to save that sinner. So if that is true, that means that there will never be a moment in your life where you sin too much. And somehow Jesus says, you know what, this just isn't worth it. This relationship is too toxic. There will never come a point in time where Jesus Christ says, this just isn't working out. I thought, I thought maybe we could make it work, uh, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm quitting on you, and I've got to get out of here for my own sake. He'll never say that to you, ever. You will never be in a worse state than you were when Jesus Christ died for your sins. And all that he is doing in this is he is taking you in your unlovable state and by his love lavished upon you, he is making you lovely. That's what God is doing in your salvation. That's what God is doing for you in Jesus Christ. He is taking you in your unlovable, sinful state. He is loving you in spite of yourself. And by his love, he is transforming you so that now in Christ Jesus, you actually are lovely. He is transforming you so that you who once were unlovable now become lovely in Christ Jesus. You who once were poor in your spirits now are made rich through Christ's poverty. And we who once were lost in sin, Christ became sin for us, that in him we might become God's righteousness. And just as Boaz had a public testimony, you and I have a public witness to this fact. Not by the transferring of a shoe. Uh, I'm not going to take off my sandal up here and hand it to anybody. That's not how we indicate things anymore. But Jesus did indicate publicly that this was true as he sets this table for you. This table, week in and week out, this is a public witness for your soul 
that Jesus Christ is dead set on loving you into loveliness. This table is where Jesus declares to the world, I have loved this unlovely woman, my church, and I will care for and love her so much that I, by my love, will make her lovely. And when you and I come to this table, we're like those elders in the gate with Boaz. We respond, I'm a witness to that. That's what we say when we come to this table. We say together, we are witnesses of this. We have witnessed it in ourselves, and we are witness to this fact that Christ died to save sinners. That Christ became poor to make those who were poor rich in him. And that God loves the unlovely and loves them into loveliness. That's one reason why we warn against coming to this table half-heartedly. If you cannot honestly say in your heart, I am a witness to that reality. I have experienced it myself, and I have seen it in others. If you can't honestly say, we are witnesses, then this table's not for you. Not yet. But if you have witnessed that reality, if you've experienced in your own heart the saving love of Jesus Christ, and when you and I come to this table, that's what we say in the presence of the world, in the eyes of the world. We say, we are witnesses to this reality. God loves sinners. And God loved this sinner. My friends, Ruth's story ends beautifully. It ends better, I think, than she could have possibly imagined. And we're going to consider more next week about how God works all these things out for the good of his people. But uh, I think it is fitting for us as we come to this table to, to simply meditate on that. That at this table we declare God loves unlovely sinners and by his love he makes us lovely. We are witnesses to this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that good word. Lord, we do pray that we would receive that love. Lord, we pray that like Ruth, we would be humble enough to admit our need, to admit our poverty, to admit that in your eyes we can do nothing good, but Lord, that we need your grace. We need your love. We need your redemptive work in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that wonderful truth that, Lord, in this life, no sinner is too far gone. No sinner is too far destitute, too poor to come to Christ and to be made rich. Well, Lord, give us the spirit of Ruth today. Give us a humble spirit that would simply stretch out our hands with faith and lay hold on the free gift of your redemption that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, all these things we ask in his name. Amen.